Chapter Five, Part Two of *The Man with the Black Cord* by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Colbron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The return of the prodigal son continued. Mueller reached Pressburg that evening after midnight and went to a hotel at once. He was up again at seven and walked over to the theater. The bills for the performance of the day before were still hanging on the boards and an attendant came out to change them as the detective stood there. "'This is the bill for today, sir,' said the man. "'That's what we gave yesterday.' Mueller inquired about Mr. von Lankowitz, and the attendant shrugged his shoulders with a smile. "'Oh, he never gets his name on the bill,' he said. "'He sings along with the rest of them in the chorus.' A silver piece pressed into the man's hand brought forth the necessary information regarding the address of the young chorus singer. As it was at a considerable distance from the theater, Mueller set out in spite of the early hour. The number he sought was in a new street of cheap tenements, where the outer wall of the houses, newly erected as they were, was already cracking and peeling off. The interior, the halls, and the many stairways were equally unattractive. Finally, after many inquiries, Mueller found the apartment he sought. As he stopped in front of the door, he could look through its little glass peephole into an untidy kitchen about the walls of which women's garments were hanging. The whole look of the place, as far as he could see, told him that even if the two young men were alike in character, this mother was very different from Mrs. Tunner. On the door were two visiting cards decorated with a crest of arms and a crown. On the one card stood the name Henrietta Amelie Lankowitz de Zober et Erdofelva. Underneath was written in ink, Lessons in Dancing and Deportment. The other card showed the name of the young Lankowitz. The writing on the first card gave Mueller the excuse that he needed to enter the apartment, and he pressed the button at once. He had to wait some time. Finally he heard steps coming to the door from another direction, and it was opened a tiny crack. "'What do you want?' said a small plump woman, whose untidy gray head showed in the opening. "'I would like to speak to Mrs. von Lankowitz.' "'I am Mrs. von Lankowitz.' Mueller excused his early coming by saying that he was busy the rest of the day, but that he wanted to speak about dancing lessons for his nieces. This won the confidence of the woman on the other side of the door, and she asked him to come in. Inside, in an untidy room, he saw that she was at least sixty, short, and fat. Her face, swollen and puffy, was already thickly powdered, although her hair had not yet been combed. She wore a torn and faded dressing-gown, and the whole look of the woman was unattractive in the extreme. But Mueller controlled his first feeling of repulsion, and soon discovered that the poor old creature was half crazy and quite harmless in her foolish vanity. His kindness and gentle flattery won her heart, and she told him all he wanted to know. Her son had a friend staying with him, she said, a nervous young man who seemed to be uneasy all the time, who only came Sunday evening, and was now going away again that very day. At the present moment the young gentlemen were out on an excursion, just where the old lady did not know. She did know, however, that the friend, who had been introduced to her as Carl Tunner, intended to leave Pressburg by the six o'clock train. When Mueller had learned all this, he took his farewell, promising that Mrs. von Lankowitz should hear from him the very next day regarding the lessons. The detective was glad to escape into the pure air outside and as he had nothing to do, he spent the rest of the day in the charming surroundings of the city. An hour before train time he went to the station, took his ticket, ordered a compartment reserved for him, and then strolled about, apparently careless. 
but in reality watching every young man who passed him. He was quite calm and collected. There was not a sign of excitement about him. The experienced detective had by this time made up his mind that Leopold Erlock had been murdered and his body hidden somewhere. But since the last evening he no longer considered Carl Tunner as the possible criminal, for in his mind a crime such as he now believed to have been committed needed careful, cold-blooded preparation and a nerve and self-control of which this young vagabond would hardly be in possession. It would have been quite impossible for him to have carried out the crime unless his mother were in league with him, and this, Mueller now knew, was not the case. With his knowledge of human nature, he realized the honesty and uprightness of the woman's character. The boy was a good-for-nothing. He was lazy, he might be a thief, possibly, but he could not be a murderer, not yet, at least. Mueller was honest with himself also, and he indulged in a quiet laugh at his own expense just now. Before he took the train for Pressburg the evening of the day previous, he had known perfectly well that Carl Tunner had nothing to do with the murder, and yet he devoted twenty-four hours to finding the young scapegrace and bringing him home to his mother, and he did it for no other reason than the fact that he felt sorry for this mother, and that she at least seemed worth a little time and money spent in the rescue of her boy. It was one of the little digressions that he could not help, and he excused it to himself by saying that from the next morning on he would devote all his energy to the Erlock case. The time passed finally, and about ten minutes before the departure of the train two young men came in hastily in earnest conversation. They parted just inside the door, and the taller of the two hurried to the ticket office. Mueller, who followed close behind, heard him ask for a third-class ticket to Vienna. There was no third class on the express, so the young man was obliged to go second. When he had his ticket, he hurried out to the platform, Mueller still following. The detective motioned to the waiting conductor, and the official helped the young man into the compartment that Mueller had reserved. The latter got in himself, and a moment later the train started. "'Good afternoon, Mr. Tunner,' began Mueller, when they were well on their way. Carl Tunner sprang from his seat, then sank back again, stammering inarticulately. "'You want to know who I am?' asked Mueller with a smile. I am a man who has come to find you and take you home. I am a detective. Did that fool Stillinger give me away, when there was no need for it, or have they arrested him again? Mueller was surprised, but now he knew why Carl Tunner left Vienna. Don't be angry, he said. You ought to have known that you couldn't depend on Stillinger. But it was he who told me to stand watch. Even then you didn't have to do it. Did you ever go a whole week without anything to eat? No, I'm not afraid of work. Carl Tunner's eyes dropped. I was coming home, he said after a pause. I wanted to come back and be a decent man again. I was coming back to see my mother. But I won't be able to do it now. I won't be able to ask her to forgive me. I never thought that I'd be arrested now. Oh, my poor mother will never outlive it. But you will, all right. Oh, don't make fun of me. Haven't you got a heart? About as much as you have, to judge by your conduct towards your mother. Oh, I'm a good-for-nothing. I know it. But how do you know so much about me? Have the police been watching me? They've naturally been looking up your record. On account of that little fool thing? Stillinger sent me word that the man wasn't really hurt. Why did they arrest him again, then? And why did you follow me here? See here, young friend, you'd better not be asking so many questions. Leave that to me. Very well, then. But I don't have to answer you, do I? Oh, ho, we're defiant, are we? That will only make things worse for you. The best thing for you to do is to stick severely to the truth. 
then you won't mix yourself up in what you say and set the judge against you the judge are they going to bring me to trial why of course they want to find out about the other matter the more important one what other matter what do you mean i mean what happened in the erlock house what happened there tunner's voice was full of defiance i told my mother she ought to ask mr erlock for money if you want to know i don't know why that should interest the police she didn't do it anyway she turned me out of the house and and then she fainted and lay there unconscious ever so long the next morning mr erlock had disappeared and has not been found since carl tunner stared at the man opposite him as if dazed it was clear that he did not understand the matter at all at first but as the comprehension came to him he screamed aloud and sprang up he stood before muller his face white his big blue eyes full of horror trembling in every fibre and stretched out his hand as if pleading for mercy then that was what she meant he groaned that she even believes me capable of murder that was what she meant and i didn't dare tell her that it wasn't true because just a few days before i'd helped to knock a man senseless and rob him the poor boy sank back in his seat trembling all over muller looked at him pityingly although his mind was busy with the question who then is the unknown murderer and where must i seek him it was some time before carl tunner could control himself finally he began to speak again you say that mr erlock disappeared that night yes that was what i said and in my excitement i imagined of course that he must have been murdered and buried somewhere you may possibly be right about that possibly don't they know no nothing has been discovered why did they think of me i hadn't anything against the old man i never even saw him robbery may have been the motive for the murder it is known that you were with your mother that evening after erlock had gone to bed young tunner clenched his teeth and groaned aloud as muller continued calmly we know your past career we know that you are idle and disinclined to work we know that you are pleasure-loving and unscrupulous with but a very poor idea of duty or consideration for others it's easy enough to be led into murder when one is determined to get money at any cost you confess to the other matter might it not have been the same with erlock he was an old man not strong it would have taken little to finish him especially when he had been awakened from sleep who says he was asleep while i was in the house interrupted carl what do you know about it i know there was a light in his room not a night light a regular lamp did your mother know that no i didn't tell her she thought he was asleep it would be difficult for you to convince people that you could climb that wall without help so they know i came in over the wall do they said carl bitterly and they think i must have brought an accomplice with me do they do they believe that my mother no they do not said muller quickly your mother's life would give the lie to any suspicions carl's head sank on his breast after a while he spoke slowly and grimly yes stillinger was with me but he stayed outside the wall it was he who drove me to do it to go to my mother that evening and he waited outside for me why did you want a hundred crowns of course i don't believe the story of the position and the bond but i certainly don't think you're bad enough to frighten your mother to that extent just because that rascal stillinger demanded it of you again carl paused a moment before he spoke well i suppose you'll have to know that too i had a position as errand boy with a tailor and he gave me an overcoat to take to the furrier i pawned the coat and stillinger and i used up the fifty crowns it brought me of course it was found out on the eighth of september it was the tailor found the pawn ticket and told me he'd give me two days to return the money i was living with stillinger then and of course i told him the story he said to go to my mother about it 
and you asked her for a hundred crowns man alive isn't there any limit to your heartlessness and your impudence carl tunner's head sank again in spite of his show of bravado he was only half-heartedly a rascal meekly he endured all this scolding at the hands of a man who although carl did not know it had no authority for the position he took but it was one of Mueller's characteristics that he invariably knew the right time to say a thing. It was this that gave him his power to touch the heart of even the most abandoned criminal. His present task was an easy one. Carl Tunner had reached the crisis which comes to all at some time or other, the moment when the natural good, hidden down deep in the boy's heart, began to assert itself in a wave of disgust at the life he was leading. For in spite of his selfishness and laziness, Carl was not really bad at heart. He had a hidden fund of inherited good qualities to fall back upon, and the crisis of emotion through which he was now passing had served to bring it out. He bared his soul piteously to this utter stranger, as a sort of penance for his misdoing. "'And when your mother couldn't give you the money, what did you do then?' inquired the detective. "'Stillinger and I spent all day making plans. Finally, we decided to try the hold-up. Do you want me to tell you about that?' "'No, you needn't. I know about it.' Mueller had read the police account of the farmer coming into market in the early morning hours and being held up by a young man by the name of Stillinger, who was known to be an assistant at the city market. In spite of the victim's intoxication, he had managed to call for help, and Stillinger was arrested. His accomplice, who had stood sentry, escaped. Mueller was now the first to know that Carl Tunner had been this accomplice. The victim of the hold-up had not been injured at all, and the prisoner protested that it was a misunderstanding. Therefore, he was released after two or three days. Mueller continued his questioning. How did you know that your mother had left Insersdorf? She wrote to me. But she told you nothing about Mr. Erlock's disappearance? And you didn't see it in the papers? I don't often get a chance to read a paper, and since I've had so much trouble, I haven't taken any interest in anything. I look over the advertisements in the Crown Gazette. That is, I've done so since the 12th of September. Oh, I see smiled Mueller. That was how you knew it was safe for you to come back. An arrangement with Stillinger, eh? Sure. He let me know it was all right, and I wanted to come back to give my mother the rest of the money. To tell her everything. And to promise her you'd turn over a new leaf? The detective's tone was slightly sarcastic. Carl looked at him pleadingly and answered, I really want to do it this time. Will I be allowed to see my mother? Soon? Real soon? If she's got to live through this disgrace, at least I want her to know that I'm not a murderer. The young man burst into tears, and Mueller let the crisis of his emotion pass without interruption. When Carl had controlled himself again, he said, "'And when I serve my term, when they let me out again, will you let me hunt for Erlock's murderer? If they haven't found him till then, I'll find him.' A smile and a quick look of interest illumined Mueller's face. "'That's not a bad idea,' he said after a moment. "'How much schooling have you had?' "'Normal school and a business school.' "'And yet you've never been able to accomplish anything?' "'I—I—I I, I didn't half try, I'm afraid.' "'Do you know any foreign languages?' "'I can speak French. My mother speaks it just as she does German, and we always spoke it at home when I was a child. I kept it up ever since.' "'That might come in handy,' said Mueller thoughtfully. After this they both relapsed into silence. Carl did not say another word even when the station was reached. He followed Mueller quietly into the cab and sat cowering in the corner as they drove through the lighted streets.' Supposing that he was being driven to prison, he paid no attention to his surroundings. Mechanically, he alighted when the carriage stopped and followed the detective into the house 
and into a room on the ground floor. It was a comfortable, warm, and well-lit room, but the unhappy boy did not notice it. He sank into a chair and covered his face with his hands. "'And I've come down to this,' he thought, "'but no one will pity me, for I've deserved it.' He sat there for some time until he heard steps outside and the door opened softly. Even then he didn't dare look up. "'Now they're coming after me to take me to the cell,' he thought. Finally, as no one spoke, he mustered up courage to raise his head, looking toward the now open door. With a cry he sprang up, ran forward, and fell on his knees at the feet of the woman who stood there. "'Mother, oh, mother!' he sobbed. End of chapter 5, part 2